Okay, would you take your Bible, open it to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. So we continue our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Mark. How many of you went to the Valentine dinner on Friday night? Raise up your hand. Wasn't that a fun night? The marriage ministry just did a wonderful job. That was awesome. That was, that was really fun. And I think one of the highlights for me was the karaoke, personally, because I saw some people that night in a different light. I don't know what it is about karaoke, but people started dancing and singing, and, and I, I did this. I didn't know that about that person. <laughs> wow. And uh, it was mostly positive. Um, <laughs> have you ever read through the Gospels and you're, you're reading through a Gospel and you feel like you know, you know the Lord pretty well and you come to a, a section of the Gospel and you're like, wow, I didn't know that about the Lord. It could be a, a radical truth of something that he said that maybe would be hard-hitting and you're like, wow. It could be a tender moment where he did something that may blow your mind, unexpected grace. But that's, that's the beauty of going through the Gospels. You get to see these wonderful miracles and never forget that when you are watching Jesus in action in the Gospels, you are watching God in action. Jesus said in John 14, 9, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In John 1, 18, Jesus said he had come to explain the Father to us So when you are watching Jesus interact with people in the Gospels, remember you are watching God in action. Would you pray with me? Father, we want to lay this time at your feet. We know that your word is alive. It's profitable. It pierces, but it also heals. It washes, and it also brings growth. That's because it's from you. But we want to be good soil too, Lord. We know that the word goes down into the soil, but the soil needs to be prepared. And that's our prayer for us, is that we be ready to hear what your spirit says to your church. Your bride is here, assembled, ready to hear from the bridegroom. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us in a powerful way, in a transforming way. I pray that we would make the appropriate application and whatever you want to add, Lord, right now, whatever you want to take away from what I've prepared, please do it so that you can speak, that your glory would be on display and that we'd be transformed more into the image of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. Now, so far in the Gospel of Mark, we've looked at Jesus coming out of the gate, Mark 1.15, and he begins to preach The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And then he calls two sets of brothers, fishermen, and he says, I'm going to make you, remember, fishers of men. And then Jesus begins to show them how to fish. And one of the things that happens early in the Gospel of Mark is a leper comes to him and he breaks all the social rules and he comes into a place where there's a huge crowd and he gets down on his knees and he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can, remember, Make me clean. And Jesus says, I am willing, be cleansed. And we have this incredible healing of the leper. But I told you that Jesus' miracles were also, do you remember? Parables. They authentically occurred, they met an immediate physical need, but they also had a spiritual picture or a deeper point. 
The second miracle healing that we see in the Gospel of Mark is the paralytic. And he's been uh, crippled. He's on a stretcher. Four friends find a way. The, the front door is crowded. They, they go up on the roof. And remember, we saw the picture of them cutting that hole in the roof. And, the, and faith found a way. And they lowered that friend to Jesus. And Jesus said, take courage, my son. Do you remember? Your sins are forgiven. And then the, the, we know the religious leaders were kind of grumbling. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus said, which is easier to say? Son, your sins are forgiven or rise up, take your pallet and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, rise up and walk. And the crippled man rose up and walked. A picture of uh, rising up to newness of life. The leper, a picture of being cleansed by sin. The uh, paralytic, a picture of rising to new life in Jesus Christ. And he took up his pallet and he went home. Remember we were suggesting that he probably went down the road. Yeah, dancing, right? Dancing into the sunset. Beautiful healings that have occurred. And now we're going to see another healing. But the the need is not as obvious. It was obvious what the leper's need was. It was obvious what the paralytic's need was. But the man that will be healed next is not a leper. His name is Levi. In his own gospel, he calls his name Matthew. And he's going to experience a healing on the inside. He is a tax gatherer. And Matthew had set up shop by the sea. I've been showing you a few pictures of the uh, Sea of Galilee. So I'm going to show you one here. And, you know, sometimes when we think of the Sea of Galilee, we can think of a placid sheet of water that, you know, is a nice place to take a boat ride or have a swim. But in the Jewish mind, the sea represented also darkness and evil. It represented that which was unpredictable in life. Think of storms that come and, and dark times. And in fact, there's going to be a scene later in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus actually calms the water, and there's, a, there's even a spiritual picture there. Well, Matthew had set up a tax gatherer's booth by this location by the sea. And we are introduced to this story in Mark 2, verse 13, and we'll go up to verse 22 for this morning. Mark 2, 13. I just want to set this up by saying one more thing. I think Matthew or Levi was crying out inside, Lord, I need you. And I've been walking with the Lord for about 30 years now, and I can tell you this, the Lord continues to teach me to pray that way. As a man, sometimes it's hard for us to admit that we need the Lord. It's hard to start a day maybe honestly saying, Lord, I need you. But I'm learning more and more about my own humanity, how my own flesh can be so weak that I need to pray every day. However you pray that, Lord, I need you. I need a doctor. So that's why I entitled this message, Who Needs a Doctor? Now, maybe you've said those words before. If you have, you're a man. Because men always say, or at least a lot of men do, who needs a doctor? And a lot of men, does this resonate with any of you ladies? Do you want to point at anybody right now? So, so we'll say, I don't need a doctor. I don't, I don't need to go see that. They're all a bunch of quacks, right? Have you heard, you know, you heard the story of a lady, I think she was up in the Pacific Northwest, she was in Oregon, and uh, she was going to the psychologist, and he had convinced her, you know, she she was having problems, that she had 13 different personalities, one of which he said was a duck. What a quack, right? I mean, that was was a joke. (laughs) But, you know, guys, we are 
we are notorious for not going to the doctor until something's dangling. Like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't need to go. And finally we go into the doctor and the doctor will say, hey, it's a, it's a good thing that you got here. And you're just like, just tape it up. I'll be fine. And then you'll complain to your wife and you'll say, honey, you know, this is hurting or that is hurting. And my wife will say, then you're not going to play golf tomorrow, right? And I'll be like, yeah, I can, I'm fine. <laughs> I can play golf tomorrow. It's, it's good, Right? Well, one of the things in the Gospels that we have to realize is that we have to see our need for Jesus. It can be tough. And sometimes when you first hear the message of the Bible, you're confronted with your need and it can be even uncomfortable. I think Matthew knew his need. I think he was crying out inside. Let's pick up the story, Mark two thirteen, And he, that is Jesus, went out again by the seashore. So he's by the Sea of Galilee. And all the multitudes were coming to him and he was teaching them. Now, we have already seen him go out of Galilee and return. And he, was, he went out again by the seashore and there's huge waves of people who are thronging to him again. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax office and he said to him, follow me. And he rose, picture of rising to a new life, and he followed him. Now, where Levi or Matthew spent his time is at a tax gatherer's booth or a tax collecting booth. And what happened in uh, Israel is that you could buy a tax franchise from Rome. At this time, uh, Israel was under Roman occupation and they let you bid for a tax franchise. And if you won the bidding, you were able to set up in a geographic location and collect taxes. All that Rome really asked of you was to pay an annual fee to them. What you did from there, they didn't care. They just wanted their money. So the people that were set up at this time were under the rule of Herod Antipas. They would spend time uh, counting money. They would keep a ledger of who owed what. They were known to squeeze money out of people, out of the poor. And basically, they became thieves because anything that they could get above and beyond what Rome wanted, they got to keep for themselves. So tax collectors, scholars agree, became the most hated people in all of Israel. They were known as turncoats to their nation. They had sold their soul for the sake of business. And Matthew sat at the place like this as a regular part of his life. And he had set up shop by the Sea of uh, Galilee in Capernaum. Now, as you read on this, there's different ways that they collected taxes. And they had poll taxes and they would tax different things. But In cutting to the chase for this story, apparently if you were by the sea, they could even tax fish. So if you were a fisherman and you fished on the Sea of Galilee near Capernaum, Levi or Matthew was your arch enemy. Because every time you had a big catch, guess what Matthew would do? Hey, come on over. And he would take from your catch. Now taxes and paying them are one of the most uh, unfortunate parts of life. But, but it is reality, and tax season frightens some people, and the three letters IRS frightens people, and you can think of the angst in our own culture for the IRS, but think of this. This man was known that he had basically sold his soul for the sake of money. You see, Matthew or Levi was also crippled. He was also leprous, but in a different way from his own choices. He had chosen to be the tax man, and with that, he had lost all of his friends, I'm sure that his wife was an outcast. I'm sure his kids got made fun of because he was the man that everybody loved to hate. That is Levi. That is Matthew. 
He was broken inside. And I believe that he was probably crying out inside. And as Jesus went and did ministry along the Sea of Galilee, he was watching people respond to Jesus. He was watching people perhaps run by after just being healed or freed from demon possession. And maybe deep inside, Levi was saying, Lord, can you heal me too? My need is not as obvious, but I've got all this stuff. I've got a flourishing business, but an empty soul. Do you know people like that? They're successful on the outside. They have, they have things, they have possessions, but inside they are dying. They have realized, maybe more than other people, that those possessions never can really give you true life. And so Matthew sat there day after day. Yeah, he was making money hand over fist. Yeah, he was well taken care of financially, but he was empty on the inside. And there was a divine appointment that would occur by the Sea of Galilee. Jesus passed him by. He saw Levi. That's the idea of seeing deeply, or he saw into his soul. And he said to him, follow me. Now, when we read stories like this, we sometimes get this sense that maybe it was the first meeting that these guys had ever had, and it was a a moment where Jesus just stops at this booth, and he peers into somebody's soul and says, follow me, and they bounce off their chair like they're sitting on a spring, and they follow him, but I'm not sure that that's the case. I think there was already something stirring in Matthew. I think maybe he was already asking deep questions. I think the presence of Jesus Christ was already stirring his own soul and the lostness in his soul. And that's hope for those of us who have witnessed to people more than one time. You know, we, we share the gospel with someone and they don't respond automatically and we think, oh, maybe they're never going to come to the Lord. But how many of you came the first time that you heard the gospel? Uh, maybe not. Maybe you heard it, maybe seeds were planted, and then eventually you decided to surrender. In, uh, at my home, I have uh, the visual Bible. It's the, the Gospel of Matthew, word for word, acted out. And it came out years ago when things were actually on VHS. How many of you remember those days? You just took the VHS, you put it in your toaster, and it would play. It was a, anyway, and so the character Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, the music's playing, and here's how it's depicted. Matthew is pictured as an old man, and he's writing his Gospel at an older age, and he's looking back on his life. And as he writes Matthew chapter 9, he talks about Jesus stopping at the tax gatherer's booth and how he called Matthew, and he said, follow me, and Matthew followed. And the music begins to play, and you look into the eyes of the older Matthew, and you just can't even begin to fathom how important that moment was. Because as he reflects on that call, he thinks, that moment of my life changed everything. I was called out of a tax gatherer's booth, a hated man, uh, didn't know where I was going, empty and dead inside to now a man of God. And Matthew now had the opportunity to be one of the 12 apostles. He had the opportunity to write a gospel and he had an opportunity to be used for time and go into eternity in the presence of Jesus Christ. That's a pretty poignant moment. But not everybody was happy about Matthew's call. Because remember, two sets of brothers have been called. They're both fishermen. You've got Peter and Andrew, James and John, and this is the man that they don't like either. So they're walking along with Jesus down by the sea, and Jesus turns to the tax collector. Can you feel the moment? Follow me. And the disciples had to be saying, No! No, do not call him. Tell him to go to another church. Please. Because I've given that man so much fish and he's a ripoff. You're not going to call him to be one of the 12, are you, Lord? No way. And the Lord said, way. 
That's my own take. And in comes Matthew. Could you imagine being one of those fishermen? No, Lord, I don't want him to be one of the 12. But that's what Jesus does. He calls all these different people from all these different backgrounds. And sometimes you see somebody in church that you've known from years past, and you go, oh. And they knew you from years past, and they go, oh. And that's why this is a community of grace. It's a community of the forgiven, amen? Can you imagine? That had to be hard the first couple of months. Really? Maybe there's, can they kick him out? I don't know, you know. And so here's Levi, and he's been changed and healed in a different way. He had been defined by his tax booth, by his career choices, but now he was a man of God. I don't know where the Lord's called you from, but the Lord got a uh, name attached to him that he was the friend of tax gatherers and sinners. A story from 19th century England, there was a poor woman who attended a church women's meeting. She had been living with a man of another race by which she had a baby, and she brought the child with her. She liked the meeting, so she came back again and again. But then the vicar came to her and said, I must ask you not to come to this meeting again. Seeing her questioning look, he continued, the other women say that they will stop coming, this meet, coming to this meeting if you continue to come. Looking at him in poignant wistfulness, she asked, Sir, I know that I'm a sinner, but isn't there anywhere a sinner can go? Fortunately, the story says the Salvation Army reached out to her and she was claimed for Christ. But it is a sad commentary when the church becomes this exclusive club and we no longer become a place that's a friend to tax gatherers and sinners. Jesus was, we should be as well. If your whole world is just about Christians and you don't spend any time with non-Christians, I ask you the question, where are you fishing? How are you reaching out to the lost if you don't have any non-Christian friends? Now, I'm not talking about marrying a non-Christian. You should not do that. I'm not talking about starting a business with a non-Christian. I'm not talking even about maybe a really intimate, close friendship, although that's possible with a non-Christian. I am talking about reaching out to people who need to know that Jesus is alive in you. We need you to be a Christian where you are. Amen? Where you work, where you play, where you live. That's where we need the church to shine. It's not about some exclusive club. It is hope for the hopeless. Lepers, paralytics, and tax people are welcome to Jesus. The people who didn't come to the doctor were the ones who didn't realize they were sick. They refused to come because of their pride. They were the scribes and they were the Pharisees. And Jesus said of them, you are famous for cleaning the outside of the cup and the dish but it is filthy on the inside. You're leprous on the inside, though you look good on the outside. Yes, you fast twice a week. Yes, you tithe. Yes, you pray on the street corner. But Jesus said, you're like whitewashed tombs. You're painted on the outside, and inside you're full of dead men's bones and all kinds of uncleanness. Wow. And these are the people that the normal, average people look to and said, well, I wish I could be like them. And Jesus is saying, do what they say. But don't do what they do. For they put burdens on you that they don't even carry themselves. And so here's Matthew, an unexpected disciple. And in he comes. Now you'll notice in verse 14 his name is Levi. 
And Levi is an interesting name because many of you know that this goes back to the Levitical line. And there were really only select people that could serve in the temple service, and they came from the tribe of Aaron and the tribe of Levi. If you go into a Hebrew lexicon, the the name Levi means joined, and it means to be joined to the temple service seems to be the idea to handle the holy things. Can you imagine being this man Levi and knowing that your family line meant that you should be working in the temple and you should be a man handling the things of God and now your life is defined by handling that which is filthy, dirty, and corrupt. I'm sure he lived with that guilt every day. I meet people sometimes in various places and I find out their name and their name's a biblical name. I'll meet a John or I'll meet somebody, with Matthew or even Michael. Michael's a wonderful biblical name, don't you think? And I'll say to them, hey, you're, I'll meet a Daniel. Hey, your name is from the Bible. And it's almost like a light comes back in their head. Oh, that's right, yeah. And I'll say to them, do you know that story? Do you know about that guy in the Bible? Well, it's vaguely. And I'll say, that's what you're named after. You're named after a guy who took a stand in a foreign land, and I'll begin to go into it. It's a great witnessing opportunity. You see, Levi had forgotten who he was. Have you? He'd forgotten that heritage and he got involved in something that promised him big money and, and maybe, you know, a big house, but he was lost on the inside. You know, the promises that society makes to us, you guys, please listen to this well, about when you get all this stuff, then you'll be happy is a big fat lie. And Levi was living that lie. He was paralyzed on the inside and he got up and followed the parallel account and Luke 5.28 says he left everything behind, rose up and began to follow Jesus. Luke 5, 28. He left everything behind. Now, it's one thing if you're a fisherman and you leave your nets or you leave your father in the boat with uh, other helpers or servants. It's another thing when you leave a tax business behind because to my knowledge, you ain't ever going back. You have made a decision that's not just a marginal decision. You have made a decision to count the cost and you have said, these worldly things don't matter to me as much as my soul. I'm leaving it behind. And he left. He left that table. He left the piles of money. He left everything behind and he followed Jesus. I don't know if you've counted the cost, but there is a cost to count. We should calculate the cost. Jesus is saying, I want everything in your life and I'll redeem it. Now, I know... um, Many of you in this room, and I know whatever we have given up for the Lord, what has he done in your life? He's multiplied things in my life. Things that I thought were so important, I just had to hold on to. He's actually just replaced them with things a thousand times better. Things like hope, peace, a clean conscience, a good marriage, uh, uh, hopefully a testimony that is respectable. See, these are the things that really matter in life. These are the things that are going to last in life. This, this is what the kingdom of God is about. And so Matthew's a happy camper. He's been healed on the inside, touched by the Lord. And it came about, verse 15, Mark 2, that he, Jesus, was reclining at the table in his or Levi's house. And many tax gatherers and sinners, sinners is a technical term, for a class of people who were regarded by the Pharisees as inferior because they showed no interest in scribal tradition and they were basically outcasts. So Levi throws a party and those who were dining with Jesus and his disciples, there were many of them and they were following Jesus. Luke 5.29 says, Levi gave a big reception. He probably had a big house. From his house, 
there was a crowd of tax gatherers and other people who were reclining at the table with them. So all of a sudden, a reception is given in the honor of Jesus. Levi is a happy Christian, and he invites all these people, and get this, this is an IRS party. Can you imagine that? You go to a party, and it's filled with a bunch of tax collectors, and in addition to that, there's prostitutes and outcasts of society. I would not want to give my name at the door if it was an IRS party, just in case they followed up on me later. Right? This is a room full of hated people, and Jesus is in the middle of them, dining with them. To dine with someone in the tradition of the Pharisees and scribes, table fellowship was considered intimate and even holy, and they avoided anything that would potentially make them unclean. They would not sit with outcasts, with lepers, Gentiles, certainly not with tax gatherers. If you were a tax collector, they wouldn't take your offering in the synagogue. You got excommunicated. You couldn't vote. You couldn't become a judge. Nothing. You were an outcast. This is the party that now is being held. And Jesus is in the midst of all these people. And the religious leaders uh, wouldn't go in, to my knowledge, but maybe they were watching from the outside. Maybe their ears were at the door to hear what was going on in this party. And when the scribes and the Pharisees 16 saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax gatherers, they began to say to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax gatherers and sinners? Can you imagine being one of the disciples? And the religious leaders come and ask you this question. We have no record of their response, but it would be something like this. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, ask him. Wouldn't it be convenient to have Jesus around and just point people to him? I don't know, hold on a minute, we'll get him. You can ask him. Why? I don't know, ask him. Well, here's the deal. The scribes and Pharisees were, Luke 5.30, were grumbling at his disciples. Why do you, why does your master eat and drink with people like that? Don't you know? That will make you ceremonially unclean. That will make you, they thought, unspiritual. And Jesus heard it, 17. And Jesus said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous or those who think they are righteous, but who? I came to call sinners. How can you bring sinners to a Savior unless you spend time with them? How can he become a Savior of sinners? How can he come to seek and save the lost if he doesn't sit with them and reach out to them? How can the church impact the world if all we do is stay cloistered in a building and don't live our faith out Monday through Saturday? I ask you, how? We can't. So Jesus is where he's supposed to be. He's in the midst of people who recognize their need. These people knew they were broken on the outside, broken on the inside, but the religious leaders couldn't see their need. Can you? Do you know what keeps most people from Jesus Christ? Pride. Pride. They don't want to admit that they're a sinner. They don't want to admit that they need a doctor. They don't want to admit that they're broken. And how many people wait in the natural world to see a doctor because they don't want to go. They don't want to deal with the uncomfortable truth that something may be wrong with them. Here's the truth. Something is wrong with us. We are desperately sick in our hearts. Jeremiah 17, 9. Who can understand it? 
This is the diagnosis that Jesus makes. That's why he's there. Because the Messiah has come not to call the righteous, but sinners who know they need a doctor to repentance. That's why he came. Everybody who knows they're sick qualifies to become a Christian. Everybody. One qualification, you just need to know you're sick. And the issue is our hearts that can be deceitfully wicked above all things. Now, in Matthew's parallel account, it says this. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax gatherers and sinners? And when he heard this, he said, it is not the healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Now, listen to these words. This is Matthew 9, 13. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners, And then Luke's gospel, I think, adds sinners to repentance. Don't get this wrong. When Jesus called somebody, he wasn't saying to them, you're okay in your present condition. But he knew when someone came to him broken that they already recognized their need, and then he would call them to repentance. Repentance, please hear this well, is the key to healing. You see, you can recognize your condition, but then you need to do something. And when you say to the Lord, I'm going to turn around and come towards the great physician, that's when healing occurs. Jesus says, I desire mercy above sacrifice. I don't want your religious feast or things that you do on the outside without your heart. I want loyalty above sacrifice. This is a verse in Hosea. Let's go there. Hosea. So find the middle of the Old Testament. Go right. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. Go to Hosea 6. That's where this comes from. Uh, Many of you are familiar with the story of Hosea. Hosea was an Old Testament prophet, and uh, he was told to marry a prostitute or a woman who would cheat on him. He was told by God to do this. You say, what? Yeah, that's right. He was told to marry a woman whose name still confuses many people. Her name was Gomer. I have no idea what her parents were thinking, unless Gomer Pyle was on television back in the day. I don't know. So he's supposed to marry a wife that will not be true to him, and that marriage becomes a picture of God's faithfulness to Israel, even though Israel uh, cheats with other gods. Here it is, Hosea 6, start at verse 1. It says, Come, let us return to the Lord. Hosea may be talking, the people may be talking. For he has torn us, but he will what? He will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day. Picture these healings in the Gospel of Mark. That we may live before him. So let us know. Let us press on. This is a good goal, you guys. This is a good prayer. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn. And he will come to us like the rain. Like the spring rain watering the earth. And then God responds, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim, in the north of Israel? What shall I do with you, O Judah, in the south? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud, and like the dew which goes away early, it lasts just a short time, is your loyalty. Therefore I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. Strong words have come through the prophets. And the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. Here's the quote from Jesus. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. This is quoted several times in the New Testament. And here's the point of the quote. Mercy or loyalty is a Hebrew word called 
hesed. It's the idea of God's loyal love. It's the idea of compassion and love and faithfulness. It even speaks of a door of mercy and refuge. And God says, what I want from my people is loyalty, not religious maneuverings. What I want from my people is a heart of compassion, not being religious, but having no love of people in your heart. Are you with me? Do you see how the quote goes directly to the heart of the Pharisees? But do you see how the quote could go directly to my heart? I can look religious, but if I don't care about the things of God, if I don't care about people, if I don't try to love the lost like Jesus did, do I really have his heart? Now his word goes forth, and it's like rain. Isaiah 55 is the next place. Please go there. Just a few pages towards Genesis. Isaiah 55, and this is a familiar verse to many of you, but I came across an explanation of the context here, which I want to show you, and here's what it is. Jesus' word came to Levi and others, and here's what God's word promises in Isaiah 55.10. It says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout, Isaiah 55.10, furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire." and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Keep reading. For you, those who receive this word, will go out with joy. Here's what will happen. Here's how the word will not come back void. Here's how it will be acted out in your life. You will go out with joy. Think of the leper. Think of the paralytic. Think of Levi and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills, a picture of worship uh, personified here in, in nature, will break forth into shouts of joy before you. All the streets of the field will clap their hands. Sometimes people, they go into a church and they go, should we be clapping? I don't know. Yes, clapping for the Lord is just fine. We should be excited about him. Look at verse 13. Instead of the thorn bush, not only does the rain produce joy and peace, but it transforms. You have a thorn bush in your backyard. When it rains on that thorn bush, does it create a different type of plant or a bigger thorn bush? Answer, bigger thorn bush. In my backyard, it rains and the weeds grow the most. Amen? Can I get a witness? But in this biblical picture, when it rains and snows the word of God, instead of a thorn bush, a cypress will come up. Wouldn't that be wonderful it happened in your backyard? Instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up, and it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. The religious leaders say, why is he there at a party? Why are people joyous and celebrating why does he sit among these people? Because they have been touched by God's word. Jesus said, look, you can search the scriptures all you want and think you find life in them, but these are they that testify of me. You must be willing to come to me that you might have what? Life. So here's a party going on. Religious leaders are standing on the outside looking in and there's something else going on here that is quite interesting and it's this. John, they said, and John's disciples, look at 18, uh, Mark 2, and the Pharisees were fasting. You see, there's another insight, and I believe there's a case to be made that this is happening at the same time. They've been fasting while Jesus and the sinners and the tax gatherers and the disciples are feasting. We're fasting. You're feasting. You guys must not be that spiritual. 
Do you know the religious leaders on the biblical calendar were only mandated to fast once a year during Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, according to Leviticus 16. But they fasted twice a week. They fasted every Monday and every Thursday. Now, when they fasted every Monday and every Thursday, here's what happened. Their fast was not so much about God. It was about them. It was about how they looked in the eyes of people. So Jesus said, when you fast, don't not do your hair that day. Here's what they would do. They wouldn't do their hair, or they'd blow it into a crazy hairdo, right? And then they would look all disheveled. they put on bad clothing, and they put ashes on their head, and they would walk around like this. And someone would say, brother, what's wrong? And he'd go, I'm fasting. How long have you been fasting, man? 45 minutes. I was like, what? And they would make it, the fast was about a show. It wasn't about God. It wasn't about prayer. It wasn't about spiritual uh, transformation and healing and power. It was about them. And, and in Isaiah 58, God says to the prophet, when you fast, on the day of your fast, you're throwing blows with your brother. Yeah, but I'm fasting. Doesn't one cancel out the other? As I hit him on the ground? No. On the day of your fast, you should be about the business of God. Do you see the point? They were standing outside the party. Jesus is sitting with all these people, and they've been fasting. And I think that made them a little cranky. How many of you get cranky when you're fasting? How many of you, when you haven't eaten for a couple hours, get real cranky? Right? And can you imagine them? They're standing outside like, why does he? Boy, that bread looks good. Why did? Hey! (laughs) You guys aren't that spiritual now. Let me ask you a question. Who do you think was more spiritual on that occasion? The religious leader mumbling and grumbling and wishing he just had a piece of bread? Or the people on the inside rejoicing that the Lord had saved them? Hmm. You see, sometimes what we define as true worship, sometimes we think that somberness is a reflection of true worship. So when you come in the church, shh, shh. I read of a story of a mom, she's sitting in a church like this and she had a little girl, she's like two years old in the sanctuary, and the little girl turned around and just smiled at the people, kind of like the baby dedication here, and she was just smiling, right? She wasn't being loud or anything, just smiling. She said, oh, oh dear, don't do that. What's so bad about that? The little girl, have you ever had a stare off with a little kid? It's awesome. They just like, and you're like, it's awesome. You see light and love in their lives, and Jesus is making it clear, look, This is not a time to mourn. This is a time to rejoice for the brokenness of the daughter of my people, Jeremiah 8, 21 and 22. God says, I am broken. I mourn, dismay has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead, Jeremiah 8, 22? Is there no physician there? Why then has not the health of of the daughter of my people been restored? Jesus is there to heal. And when people get healed, there's excitement. So the Pharisees were fasting and they said, they came and said to him, why do John's disciples, he still had some, and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom do not fast, do they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Jesus' imagery, as we wind down, this is wedding time, man. People don't fast at weddings. They feast at weddings. Amen? 
You don't say to your spouse as you're planning your wedding, oh, by the way, we won't have a menu. You're like, what? Yeah, we'll be fasting on the day of our wedding. You're like, no, no, no. We're feasting, baby. And in the Hebrew culture, do you know how long a wedding celebration lasted? For a week. They feasted for a week. And some of the dads who know they have to pay for weddings say, no! It's enough for me to feed those people for two hours. No week celebration. But in Jewish culture, that's what they did. They, had a, they celebrated for a whole week. And even in the rabbinic tradition, they said to people, do not fast during that week. It's a time for feasting, not for fasting. Let me ask you this question. What if the next time we walked into church, we treated a Sunday service like it was a wedding? Would that be different? Would that be a little too much for some of you? Instead of treating it like it was a library, we treated it like it was more of a wedding. That sound okay? I heard a, a faint hallelujah over there. It's okay to smile. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Right? We come here because we are the community of the redeemed. We're not only the bridegroom's friends, we're the bride. Do you believe that? So when we come, we come with joy and thanksgiving in our hearts. And Jesus said, this is not a time to mourn. I know you guys' bellies hurt and all that. No. It's a time to party. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast in that day. Biblical fasting is legitimate, and it will come, but Jesus says, now is the time to rejoice. 21, we wrap it up. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the patch pulls away from it. The new from the old, and a worse tear results. You get a pair of new jeans, you have old jeans that you like really well, you get a hole in the old ones that are comfy and all that, you don't buy a pair of new jeans and cut a hole in the new jeans to patch the old ones because you ruin the new jeans and when you patch the old ones, as soon as you wash those, that's going to fall apart. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. What's he saying? Final quote. Putting new wine, Jesus' new way into the old wineskins, Judaism or rabbinic religion, would not work. Because as the new wine fermented, gas would be released and it would stretch the old skin and break it. New wineskins were fairly elastic, but when, the old, when they get older, they lose that quality and they become inflexible and brittle and burst more easily. Ruining the wineskin and wasting the wine is what occurs. Wine is an appropriate image because it makes you think of what? The new covenant in Jesus' blood. The new covenant is the promise that he has come to bring life, not by works, but by what? By his blood. So we're going to uh, sum up right now, but as we do, um, up here, this is not our normal Sunday for the Lord's Supper, but we're going to have a time of communion. And when we do, here's my encouragement to you. When you come up to the front, if you're a Christian, we want to invite you to partake of these elements. If you're not a Christian, why not become one right now? Get saved, trust in Christ for that new life, and then you can come down and enjoy communion. What we're going to do is we're going to come from the back to the front, aisle by aisle. Just use the aisle closest to you. There's three tables up here. We're going to play some worship music, and here's what I'm going to ask you to do. 
I'm just going to ask you to be thinking about this message. Think about the leper that was cleansed, the paralytic that was healed, Matthew being healed on the inside from his lost life. Think about the master in our midst. Think about things that you want to lay down and things that you need for your life. Think about the great physician. You know, he's here right now. He's ready to give healing where you need it, restoration where you need it, but you must come. Come just as you are, but he might be telling you, hey, turn away from this thing. This is keeping you down and follow me. And you'll walk into that, that beauty of that new life. Father, thank you for this wonderful congregation. Thank you for the beauty of knowing you. Thank you for these hopeful accounts. This is really what you did. You touched people. Lepers and paralytics and tax collectors and people who were broken all different ways. You gave them hope and new life. Pour that new wine into us, Lord. Pour those living waters afresh into a life of a Christian that may be a little tapped out and poured out. Save that person who's not sure that they know you. They've been sitting at that tax collector's booth and wondering if they could find new life in this same Christ. I pray that you would just let them hear your voice clearly and follow you. To follow you to green pastures and still waters. To find restoration for their souls. To hear Jesus say, I didn't come to call the righteous. There are none. (laughs) I came to call sinners to repentance. Lord, whatever we need to leave behind, whatever has been weighing us down, help us to turn from those things. To find that you'll meet us right where we are. As we take of your table, let us remember your body pierced for us, your blood shed for us. This is how much you loved us. Help us to carry that same love into this week, to touch people, to be a light, not to manufacture it, just to let it be what it is because you're so living and moving through our lives. So with your head and heart bowed, whatever business you need to do with God, if you need to become a believer right now, just say, Lord, I trust you. Forgive me. I repent of my sin. I believe in the death of Jesus on the cross, your resurrection. Save me, Lord. Call me. I'm listening. Maybe you're a prodigal and you've been running away, trying to go back to that old life and Maybe this will be a time of refreshment for you as well. Lord, bless this precious congregation. Strengthen us. Remind us of how much you love us. Your love is so awesome. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.